Hello, it's March 9th, 2022. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend and are having a great start to your week. And if you listened to last week's episode with the fabulous Anne Roderick Jones, I mentioned that due to a few complaints, I was going to try and read this episode in a more um, natural tone to see how you may like this style. Um, Also today's uh, case is a story that I came across that was fascinating to me, but like some other episodes, I couldn't find a lot of information. So today's episode is going to be a little shorter than the others, and the formatting is going to be a little different. But with that, let's dive in to today's case. The year was 1993, and in Fayetteville, North Carolina, this southern city filled with history and cobblestone walkways had a population of a little over 100,000 back then. Fayetteville had been named the All-American City by the National Civic League three times, and Fayetteville is also home to Fort Bragg one of the largest military bases in the world. Speaking of the military, in 1993, then U.S. President Bill Clinton announced that his administration would introduce a bill that would prohibit military personnel from discriminating against openly or closeted LGBT members who were trying to serve or were active in the military. This bill was commended by many, but for one man who lived in Fayetteville, it was outrageous. And in August 1993, he let it be publicly known how he felt. In the following case, you'll find out who this man was, the awful crime he committed, and the aftermath in a case I title, Incensed. On the evening of August 6, 1993, around 30 staff and diners were inside the local favorite, Luigi's Restaurant, founded and owned by Peter and Ethel Paris. Peter Paris was born and raised in northern Greece before he immigrated to the United States 
1938, looking for business opportunities. While making his business plans, Peter was drafted into the U.S. Army and sent back to his home country of Europe. He was very well received during his time in the Army, and it was during his time in the military that he discovered his love of cooking and decided this would be his business. He'd open restaurants. So once he made it back stateside, he spent some time in Arizona and then settled in Fayetteville. In 1950, he married his wife, Ethel Contos, who hailed originally from Roanoke, Virginia, and shortly thereafter, he opened the original Luigi's. The first Luigi's was known simply as a spaghetti house, but according to a report, he soon expanded his business to a full-service Italian restaurant and introduced pizza to the city. Unfortunately, business wasn't all that great for Luigi's back then. It closed, and Peter embarked on other restaurant endeavors. For the next few decades, Peter opened several other restaurants, and they were pretty successful. But when he turned 61, he sold most of his restaurants. However, by 1982, he opened his first restaurant, Luigi's, again and it was an immediate hit. Through the rest of the 80s into the 90s, Luigi's business was booming, and since the restaurant was in the same city as nearby Fort Bragg, Luigi saw lots of soldiers and their families dine there. Going back to that August night in 1993, the business at Luigi's was no different. After all, it was a Friday night and most of the diners were getting ready for their weekend and catching up with their friends and families. Server Dawn Gabriel was working her shift when she and some diners saw a pickup truck pull up to the restaurant. Just another diner, the staff and diners thought. But they were very, very wrong. Shortly after the latest guest at the restaurant arrived, all hell broke loose. And soon after, a 911 call was made. 
made their way towards the building, with the active shooter now inside. All the doors to the restaurant were locked by staff after the original shooting began, except for the kitchen door, and that's where the officers made entry. Lieutenant Simons crept through the kitchen first, while Lieutenant Chandler and Sergeant Campbell provided cover behind him. Officer Pryor remained outside at his post. As they made their way through the kitchen, they saw a cook wounded on the floor, groaning in pain. They moved along and made their way into the dining room, and they came across a ghastly sight. Inside, many of the diners and staff had been severely wounded by the gunmen, with some of them screaming for help. As the officers heard the victims, however, Lieutenant Simons heard the sound of a gunshot being loaded. And standing just 15 feet away from him, Lieutenant Simons came face to face with the gunman who had his back against the wall, cradling his shotgun. From outside, Officer Pryor saw what was unfolding and saw the gunman through the shot-out window. He then took aim and fired, hitting the gunman. But he wasn't down and tried to remain vigilant. However, Lieutenant Simons then pointed his gun to him and shot him several times, ending the man's rampage and thinking he had killed him. Hey 90s Crime Time listeners, Simone here, interrupting this episode, I do apologize, but I am here because I'm very excited again to talk to you all about a new sponsor that the show has received, and I do believe again that it is one of the coolest products on the game market. The game is called Hunt a Killer, as you may all have heard about, and it's a very it's a detective slash murder mystery game and one of the most unique games that have come around. And this time around, I have dabbled with the game and I'm almost very close to solving the case. I am currently playing Mallory Beach and I'm more of a solo detective, but I have asked um, a few friends along the way, including my mother, to help me out. And it is a lot of fun, whether you're a solo detective like me or you like to uh, play your games with family and friends. And with each game, you'll sift through documents, evidence, audio recordings, and all that good stuff until you crack the case. Now, granted, I have not cracked the case yet, but I'm very, very, very close. Hunt a Killer is an amazing experience. And right now, you can go to huntakiller.com slash 90s crime and use the code 90s crime for $10 off your order. And this is the best part to me. When you purchase, part of the proceeds for every game box sold goes to the Cold Case Foundation, an organization that is dedicated to helping with real-life cold cases. Again, make sure to use code 90scrime for a $10 discount and head on over to huntakiller.com 
slash 90s crime and have fun cracking the cases. When medical personnel arrived to Luigi's, they tended to the 10 people that were hit by gunfire, and they tended to the gunmen, who actually survived Lieutenant Simons and Officer Pryor's gunshots. And he was later identified as 22-year-old Kenneth Jr. French. Kenneth was raised in rural Bronson, Michigan, near the Indiana border where he was described as a very nice kid and he dreamt of joining the military. However, as he was growing up, he witnessed his father, Junior French, abuse his mother. And even worse, he and his siblings also suffered at the hands of their father. But that didn't deter Kenneth from following his dreams to the military and he still had a slight love for his father. Fast forwarding to right after he graduated from high school, Kenneth, his mom, and his sister moved to Florida, and Kenneth enlisted into the army. In 1991, he decided to go back to Michigan to visit his father. But while he was there, the unthinkable happened and for reasons unknown, his father, Junior French, took his own life. Kenneth took his father's death hard, but after he passed, Kenneth and his sister told their mother of his abuse. She had apparently been oblivious to it while he was alive, and thought she was the only one who suffered Junior's wrath. Kenneth's sister told their mother that his father often degraded Kenneth and that their father sexually abused her. But even though those scars remained the abuse, the French's lives went on, and Kenneth focused on his military career. After he enlisted, Kenneth worked as a mechanic of wheeled vehicles. And by 1992, he was in the service battery, 1st Battalion of the 39th Field Artillery, 18th Airborne Corps, stationed at Fort Bragg. And during his time enlisted, he had been stationed at Fort Jackson in South Carolina and in South Korea. According to reports, Kenneth did well in the Army, just like he hoped he would. He made friends and he dated, eventually obtaining a girlfriend named Elaine. But even though Kenneth had lots of opportunity ahead of him, by 1993, Kenneth began to show signs of depression. He didn't talk about it much, but to some people who knew him, Kenneth blamed himself for his father's suicide, and he worried about a relative who had severe cystic fibrosis and that they could possibly die. By August 1993, his mother knew something was up with Kenneth, but he didn't tell her why at first. On Thursday, August 5th, 
Kenneth went out with some fellow army buddies, and they stayed out all night partying and drinking into the next morning. And Kenneth arrived back to the barracks at around 3 a.m. on Friday, August 6th. Around 9 a.m., Kenneth woke up, visited friends again, got a haircut, and went back to his home he shared with his now fiance, Elaine. That afternoon, Kenneth called a former girlfriend, and to her, he was ranting and sounded very strange. At around 7.30 p.m., he received a call from his mother who wanted to check on him. According to reports, Kenneth told his mother that he had worked that day, then stopped at a liquor store for a bottle of booze and some beer. Kenneth added that he also went to a video store and picked up an action and thriller film and was about to, quote, have his own party. But he didn't seem too happy. He told his mother that he missed Elaine, who went out of town with some friends. And like mentioned before, he was worried about his sick relative and how he still blamed himself for his father's suicide. But Kenneth also apologized to his mother for not preventing his father's abuse from her and that he could have prevented his sister's sexual assault. His mother offered to hop on the first flight to come to North Carolina to try and comfort him but Kenneth told her she didn't need to. In response, his mother told him not to do anything stupid, and he promised he wouldn't. And then the phone call ended, but his mother was left feeling uneasy. After that phone call, Kenneth began to drink heavily, and after a short binge at home, he left and attended a party. Once he arrived, he was carrying a bottle of wild turkey bourbon, and he immediately seemed on edge. According to reports, shortly after he arrived, he began yelling about how they should all kill some minorities, more specifically black people, but he used slurs instead. Seeing this, his friend suggested he take him home so he could sleep off his obvious intoxication and it shocked his friend because usually Kenneth was a happy drunk. Kenneth agreed to go back home and climbed into the passenger seat. Horridly, however, once his friend began to drive him home, Kenneth pulled out a shotgun and began to aim it at black people he saw in the area. His friend told him to stop, but Kenneth shot at a business without hurting anyone. Changing his mind, his friend took Kenneth back to the party, hoping someone else could help Kenneth out. He waited for Kenneth to go back inside and then tried to remove Kenneth's weapons and ammo. Shortly after 9 p.m., Kenneth decided to leave drunk from the party and drive his pickup away. His friend tried to block him, but Kenneth got the upper hand and gunned his truck away and the partygoers had no idea where he was going and what he was about to do next.
Around 10 p.m., Kenneth made his way to Luigi's, got out of his truck, and loaded himself with his two shotguns and a rifle. He then shot at cars and storefronts and shot out a window at the restaurant. The people inside Luigi's heard the shots and thought someone was goofing off until another window was struck with gunfire and then they realized they were in danger. Kenneth then entered the kitchen and shot a cook, Willie McCormick, leaving him wounded but alive. He then made his way to the dining room and immediately began to shoot at random. Staff and diners hid as Kenneth began to shout about his disdain with then-President Clinton's new potential policy, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which would have allowed members of the LGBTQ community to serve in the military without any questions. In response, Kenneth reportedly shouted in the restaurant, quote, I'll show you, Clinton. I'll show you about gays in the military. You think I won't? You think I won't do it? I'll show you, end quote. And Kenneth demanded everyone inside to be quiet and freeze. Most of them did as they were told, except for Mr. and Mrs. Paris, who tried to persuade Kenneth from hurting anyone. With Mr. Paris waving his arms and pleading, quote, Oh, please, don't hurt these nice people, end quote. But their pleas didn't work. Kenneth shot Peter once in his face, killing him almost instantly. After he was shot, Ethel got on the floor and cradled him crying. And in return, Kenneth shot her once in her head, killing her instantly as well. He then shot and wounded their daughter, who was working at Luigi's that evening, but she would survive. Kenneth then continued to roam the restaurant and shoot at random. But after he was shot himself, Kenneth's carnage was finally over. And when the dust settled, Kenneth had killed four people. Other than Mr. and Mrs. Paris, who were 73 and 65 respectively, Kenneth killed 26-year-old Wesley Cover, who was at Luigi's with his pregnant fiance, Ronna Woods, and their friend, Jeffrey Bradstreet. Wesley was killed after shielding Rana from Kenneth and taking a shot behind his ear through his head, killing him. His fiancée, Rana, was shot in her face and neck, and Jeffrey was shot as well, but they both survived. Coincidentally, after serving in the Army for years, his father arranged for a job for Wesley back in his hometown of Frederick, Maryland. However, he decided to stay and raise his growing family in Fayetteville because he had friends there, and he thought the city was safer. Lastly, Kenneth took the life of 46-year-old James Kidd. Like Wesley, James was killed trying to shield his son Patrick, a Fort Bragg soldier, from harm. James was from Wheaton, Illinois, and traveled to Fayetteville to simply visit his son. According to reports, Patrick held his father as he lay dying, and James' final words to his son was, quote, I love you, Patrick, 
end quote. James also left behind another son, John, and daughter, Elizabeth, who were very young. Afterwards, Kenneth was transported to the hospital, but while in the ambulance, he refused to cooperate with police and requested an attorney. But after getting to the hospital, his blood alcohol level was tested and it read at 0.25, way over North Carolina's legal limit. After he was tended to at the hospital, Kenneth was charged with four counts of first degree murder and eight counts of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. And he was taken to jail. Fast forwarding to February 1994, jury selection was made for Kenneth's trial. And the courts approved his defense attorney's request that the trial be moved from Fayetteville to Wilmington, North Carolina, due to the crime's publicity. The guilt or innocence phase of Kenneth's trial was over by the end of March 1994, and the jury deliberated for two and a half weeks. On April 1st, 1994, Kenneth Jr. French was found guilty on all counts. And on April 15th, Kenneth was sentenced to four terms plus 35 years. And he remains in prison today. Luigi's closed for two weeks after the massacre, but keeping their parents' dreams alive, Peter and Ethel Paris's children reopened the restaurant and it still thrives today. The story of the Luigi's Massacre comes from the sources of the News and Observer, the New York Times, the Fayetteville Observer, and others I'll put in the notes. And that's it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of 90s Crime Time, and I hope you are intrigued. And just like the, I believe the episode, uh, the last episode or the episode before last, I can't remember, I'd like to know what you think of this case instead of me giving my opinion this week on 90s Crime Time's social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and or Twitter. Um, and I'll be back with my own opinion piece for the next episode. Um, I hope you all liked the way I read today's episode, but either way, if you liked it or not, please let me know. And lastly, if you enjoy the show and you haven't already, please leave a review, hopefully in a good way, on any podcast platform that has 90s crime time and has a rating system, primarily Apple. So please help me out with that and hopefully give the show at least four stars. Check out huntakiller.com slash 90s crime to get your $10 off discount for the subscription game box, which is really awesome. I'm not BSing. It's really fun. It's a lot of um, interesting detective work. And lastly, stay safe and healthy, and I will see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. Mm-hmm.